This is Stacy Harbaugh with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. The State Department of Natural Resources is investigating a potential oil spill from the Enbridge Line 5 pipeline. This comes after Enbridge discovered contaminated soil just south of Ashland, Wisconsin, though the contractor believes the contamination is present due to a previous spill and not a current one. Additionally, they found no suggestion of a leak when the pipeline was turned off, nor when the pressure was increased. DNR staff have not found any oil-contaminated areas apart from what Enbridge documented, but their investigation is still ongoing. The University of Wisconsin-Madison has been cited for infringements of the Animal Welfare Act following the death of a research monkey and injury to another. This follows a report by Stop Animal Exploitation Now, a watchdog group that monitors research institutions for the mistreatment of lab animals. The report, which was completed last April, says that staff misadministered drugs to the monkeys by either giving the wrong amount of a drug or by giving it to the wrong monkey. Madison's public libraries will offer storytelling events for kids from August 8th to the 24th. These events round out the library's We Read program, which is run throughout the summer. Planned activities include workshops on digital comics, stop-motion animation, and podcast creation, along with opportunities to read to a dog. The events will take place across Madison's libraries, and their offerings and more details can be found on their website. And after the weather-enforced postponement of yesterday's performances at Concerts on the Square in Madison, the festival's final performance will instead take place tonight at 7 p.m. Tonight's performance is called The Finale with Foley and will feature bassist Xavier Foley. As with other performances in this summer concert series, it will be set up on the King Street corner of the Capitol Square. This year's edition of the annual Concerts on the Square series has featured performances each Wednesday for the past six weeks, with the exception of yesterday due to severe thunderstorms in the county. And now on to today's top stories. The fall semester is just around the corner, and UW-Madison students will soon be returning to our city in droves. But some workers on campus worry that, as they return, they'll bring COVID with them. That's why they're asking the new chancellor to establish more protections. WORT producer Nate Weggehout has more. Over 80 UW-Madison staff and community members have signed an open letter calling for increased COVID protections on the UW-Madison campus. The letter, addressed to Chancellor Mnookin on just her second day on the job, calls for her to implement increased COVID protection protocols on campus, similar to those implemented at UCLA, where Mnookin was formerly dean of the law school. The letter demands, among other things, a return to an indoor mask mandate, indoor air quality assessments, and increased testing on campus. Dan Fitch, one of the letter's authors, says that this is a response to how the university handled COVID in the spring semester. The the one thing in specific that worries me is last week there was a Madison.com article where uh, it seemed to be saying that the UW had already, already decided not 
to test students as they students and workers as they return to campus like they have done previously and they have no plans for students to quarantine they're just like stay in your dorm room that doesn't seem great it's not going to really protect our community making petri dishes out of the dorms Encore Desai is a professor at UW-Madison and chair of the Department of Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences. He says that he signed the letter to try and keep COVID in the public eye before the fall semester starts. It's very easy after a long several years of this pandemic to want to just kind of get on with it. And I'm very um, aware of that. But at the same time, I think given uh, the continued uh, evolution of the strains of COVID as well as other viruses that may be coming on the on down the pike, there needs to be continued vigilance, right? Continued look at how we do testing, how we encourage vaccination, how we think about when we apply masking, and most importantly to me, uh, continuing to push for better ventilation and filtration, which we know is going to be the key Uh, to reducing indoor transmission of COVID and other viruses. In Dane County, there were 194 new confirmed COVID cases yesterday, and community levels of the virus remain in the high category. The letter points to research that says that nearly one in five people who get COVID end up getting long COVID, a chronic illness that can be debilitating and hinder your ability to work, study, or complete everyday tasks. Carl Broman is a professor of biostatistics at UW-Madison. He says that as students begin to come back to Madison, he is concerned that they will bring COVID with them. Response to a pandemic cannot be just individual, left to individual responsibility. It really needs to be a community effort. And choices about wearing masks, getting vaccinated are not just about protecting yourself, but also about protecting the people that are around you, some of which may be more vulnerable. Broman adds that he's hopeful the new chancellor could enforce better protections. The pandemic has been frustrating for everyone. On campus, I think many of us are really optimistic um, with this leadership change. A new chancellor who's coming from a campus, from a state that has been more involved in protecting its community and we're hoping, I mean, The open letter is partly pointing to a hope that some of the policies at UCLA can be applied at UW-Madison. Fall classes begin on September 7th, and Desai says that he is ready for the return of students. I'm really excited to have students here on campus. I think it's great we can do this. Uh, We just need to make sure we're doing all we can to support um, the health of everybody here so that we can be here on campus and learn and do the uh, teaching and research that advances our university and the state and the country. A representative of Chancellor Mnuchin's office declined comment today, saying Mnuchin didn't formally receive the letter until late this afternoon and that she had not had a chance to review it. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. A lawsuit seeking to invalidate Wisconsin's 19th century abortion restrictions is inching forward in Dane County Court. WORT reporter Emily Kasinger has an update. A lawsuit against Wisconsin's abortion ban was filed by Attorney General Josh Call more than a month ago, four days after the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and it's finally moving forward. It's been assigned to Judge Diane Schlipper, who assumed office on Monday after being elected this spring. Per a Dane County Courthouse official, no hearing will be set until at least September. 
The abortion ban in question was first passed in 1849 and heavily revised thereafter to be much more restrictive. It was written before women had the right to vote and prohibits abortion from the moment of conception except when needed to save the pregnant person's life. It also criminalizes people seeking abortions, imposing fees of up to $5,000 and jail time of up to three years. Wisconsin has passed more permissive abortion regulations in 1985, after Roe v. Wade was decided by the Supreme Court. The lawsuit alleges that these newer laws directly conflict with, and thus invalidate, the 1849 law. To quote the complaint, either it is lawful to provide a pre-viability abortion, or it is not. Either it is lawful to provide an abortion to preserve the mother's health, or it is not. The lawsuit comes as medical providers scramble for clarity on what, exactly, is legal to provide in Wisconsin. For more on why this case was brought, I called up Dr. Sheldon Wasserman, an OBGYN and a plaintiff in the lawsuit. He's also the chair of the Wisconsin Medical Examining Board, which oversees the licensing, disciplining, and regulation of physicians in the state. Dr. Wasserman detailed the medical board's concerns. The Medical Examining Board deals with the laws as they are and which laws are on the books and how clear are they written. When I saw Roe versus Wade being overruled and no longer the law of the land, it became concerning for the Medical Examining Board because we have to look at laws, we have to look at what's on the books. So it becomes very important to us that we have clear, concise, clearly delineated laws that are written well before us so we can render judgment. Dr. Wasserman says with conflicting laws on the books, the Medical Examining Board lacks the clarity it needs to do its job, and he's even more concerned that the old law doesn't take into account new advances in medicine. Speaking about 1849, he says... They didn't even have real medicine back then. I mean, it's 1849. It was before antibiotics. It was before viruses, before bacteria, before everything. And all of a sudden, now uh, we're following some law from 1849 written poorly and doesn't make sense and that we're supposed to interpret. You know, we want some kind of clarification as a board. Uh, doctors across the state want clarification. You know, what is the law? What do you want to accomplish? You know, what, what does this mean? That clarification could come from a judge's or justice's if the ruling is appealed to the Supreme Court ruling on which of the laws are enforceable. Clarification could also come from the legislature, which could pass a new abortion law or strike out one of the old ones. To the legislature, Dr. Wasserman, a former state legislator himself, says this. And if the legislature wants to take up a law, why don't they write a new one, write something that everybody can see and don't rely on some 1849 law. Um, you know, they have to do their work, come up with something modern that Wisconsin doctors can work with. And I think the general population should see. People of Kansas had a, a right and a voice in the matter, and I think the citizens of Wisconsin should have that same type of voice. Here, Dr. Wasserman is referring to Kansas voters' rejection on Tuesday night of a ballot measure that would have amended the state's constitution to make abortion no longer a protected right. Had the amendment succeeded, it would have paved the way for an abortion ban. But abortion may be on the ballot in Wisconsin in a more indirect manner through the April 2023 election for a state Supreme Court justice. The court is currently divided 4-3 along conservative liberal lines. With the conservative justice patient Rogensack retiring, control of the court will be decided in this April election. Should the lawsuit on Wisconsin's 1849 abortion ban be appealed to the state's highest court, it could very well be heard after that election, meaning Wisconsin voters will, in a roundabout and delayed way, get a say on abortion laws in the state. 
Reporting for WORT News, this is Emily Kaysinger. The time is 6.18, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Residents of Belleville are discontent after the village board voted to sell the property of what was once the local library to a developer for less than 10% of the appraised value. The discussions for which took place behind closed doors. WORT reporter Reed Kamai spoke with to a resident who filed the complaint. I'm joined now by Josh Russo. He's the resident of Belleville, the village just northeast of New Glarus, who filed a complaint with the village in the aftermath of the board's vote to sell the building that used to house the local library. Josh, thanks for taking the time. Hey, hello. Hey. Uh, Well, first off, just give us some background about what happened and what's led you to pursue this complaint. Uh, Yeah, so we had... uh, library uh, building come in new a couple years ago and this old building has been sitting vacant for a while Uh, the village did a couple of rfps just to see who was interested and only one response came back and that was from the american legion Uh, and so what happened then is nobody responded to the legion's uh, rfp for a while uh, and they put out a second rfp and finally they met in january in a closed session and what the village administrator described as a policy decision to not pursue selling to the Legion. Uh, and so for one, you know, that that's kind of where the closed sessions are only allowed for competitive or bargaining reasons. And so making a policy decision about a purchase in closed session seems inappropriate. Uh, but then over the months of May, June, and July, there were five more closed sessions. Uh, a new purchaser looks to have been worked with by the village and when it came out in July that they were being sold the building for $20,000 that's what got a lot of people's attention so the two things that they didn't work with the Legion to even negotiate a purchase and then they ended up selling it for $20,000 which is less than 10% of the assessed value and the assessed value was as a vacant building. Yeah, two hundred ten thousand dollars is is what the is what the appraised value was. That appraisal, of course, taking place last year. Now you mentioned that. So you, you said I think that there was like some some sort of policy that said that they could not sell this to to the uh, American Legion or like what what otherwise was the rationale for the village not wanting to sell it to them. So they came up with a plan. Uh... I think it was last year. I'm not entirely sure when the plan came about, but they wanted to revitalize the downtown. And so with that in mind, they were looking to put in businesses, even though this property itself wasn't zoned and there's vacant properties on Main Street. This is something the village had more control over because they don't own the ones on Main Street. They did own this building. And so they made what they called a policy decision to not pursue selling to the Legion because they weren't a business. They weren't going to uh, bring in some of the positives that a business would as far as like tax revenue or, uh, you know, press, good press and publicity for the community. So that, that was their decision that they made back in January of 2022. And then 
Uh, in terms of the building being sold for only $20,000, again, less than 10%, like like you mentioned, of what was originally appraised for, I know that that baffled a lot of, of people. Like, what went into that much lower price tag, which, of course, seems to put the village on the shorter, giving themselves the shorter end of the stick? Well, and that that's a great question. We don't know because it all happened in closed session. And so all of the negotiations, the discussions were all done in closed session, which isn't appropriate for that. Uh, again, that's closed session is reserved only for the case where they're essentially have competing offers and they're working to get a better deal, um, not the opposite, which was kind of keeping everything hush-hush so people didn't see the deal that was happening. I know there were other businesses interested in the property, but none of them would have even considered offering $20,000. And I don't think this business would have either unless uh, somebody with the village was working with them on that offer. But again, that all happened in closed session, including the last meeting in which they voted to approve the sale. They had a closed session. Then they came out of closed session and had a vote, a unanimous vote, without any debate or discussion because all of the discussion had already happened. And then after they had that unanimous vote with no debate or discussion, then they took public comment. Uh, so it was just, it was all done backwards. And so nobody knows how they came to this $20,000 decision. And I think that's kind of rubbed a lot of people the wrong way because our community is strapped financially and we have playgrounds that are falling apart and aren't being updated. And to take such a loss, uh, it just didn't make sense. I mean, th this prospective buyer had come in a couple of times and, and made a business pitch and people were generally warm to the pitch because they, it really sounded like this buyer was going to be investing in the community and I hope they do but what happened really was that the community is investing in them and taking a whole lot of risk without any kind of protections. They basically just handed this company $190,000 minimum in free equity and are just trusting that this is all going to work out. I want to get a little more into the sort of legal rationale of this case because, you know, towns, cities, really governing bodies in general do in certain cases hold these kinds of closed door meetings. The legal complaint, which we here at WORT have obtained, claims that the village of Belleville did not have, in, in the case that you sort of mentioned, the appropriate grounds to make these meetings closed. Uh, tell us a little bit more about, about that sort of explanation as it applies here. Sure, yeah, so there's two things with each one of these uh, meetings that, that were done inappropriately. One, the notice for the meeting was improper for all of them, including the, the five from May through July and the one back in January regarding the Legion. In every case, they cited the statute, which is a 1985 uh, paragraph one, paragraph E, uh, and that's deliberating or negotiating the purchasing of public properties, dot, dot, dot. Uh, so they just cited the statute itself without any other explanation, didn't discuss the property, why it required a competitive or what, why it was required to be closed for competitive or bargaining reasons, uh, nothing else. And that's long been known to be insufficient notices, just citing the statute. So all of the meetings have that. And then secondly, the that's a very restrictive exemption, and it ends with whenever competitive or bargaining reasons require a closed session. And so that's really, again, for the case where maybe you have three offers and you don't want it getting out what those three offers are because you're going to try to 
figure out how to bargain for a better deal. And this was the opposite. They had one offer that they had ignored, and then they had this new offer, which hadn't actually come in. So they had four closed session meetings before this prospective buyer ever even made an offer, because uh, the offer didn't come in till June 28th. Uh, and so they were clearly just keeping it under wraps, and it had nothing to do with competitive or bargaining reasons. And so that's the other piece of the complaint, aside from the improper notice. What are you hoping to see happen as a result of this complaint being filed if it if it goes as 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 you hope? Well, and it's really tough and I had sent a list to the village administrator before even proceeding with this complaint of what I'd like to see happen and one it's acknowledged that this was improperly noticed, two acknowledged that uh there was no reason to be in closed session and to do better going forward. And then three, honestly, I don't know how you fix it. I mean, it, this issue, because of the purchase price and the way that it was handled with the American Legion and with other businesses, uh, it, I don't see a great way to fix it. So I challenge them, like, come up with something. Because I mean, it kind of seems like it's too late to do anything about the sale itself. But there's got to be a way that they can kind of come to the community and say, yeah, that, that wasn't appropriate. We shouldn't have handled it that way. And we're committed to doing better. And here's the process that we're going to lay out for how to do it better in the future. That's really all I was looking for. Um, but he, ba the village administrator basically stonewalled me uh, during our conversation. And his follow-up was deny, deny, deny. We didn't do anything wrong. And so we kind of left no choice but to file the complaint. Anything else you want to add before I let you go? No, I mean... Uh, I guess the only thing else I would add is just transparent government is important. I think most people in most communities are willing to acknowledge that government is difficult and that making decisions often is going to have people that support it and people that don't. And if you operate in secret, then nobody's going to trust. And then the kind of reactions to the, these bigger decisions are going to be greater and people won't feel like they can get involved and they won't really say anything because they don't feel like they have any impact until they see something like this and then they'll be de dealing with angry uh, folks. And so, you know, just be honest. Like if you think something's in the best interest of your community, then, then behave that way. Do it in public. Uh, don't stonewall their public records requests. Don't have closed sessions when people are telling you you can't actually have it. It's not like they didn't know. People were telling them, you can't have it in closed session. And so, again, it's like, if you really believe as a governmental leader that this is in the best interest of the community, then do it in public. And if it really is, and if people agree, then then you'll have support. And, and it won't kind of cause this blowback when people see something that just doesn't make sense. I've been speaking just now to Josh Russo. He's a resident of the village of Belleville on the southern border of Dane County, who has filed this complaint against the village board. Josh, thanks again for coming on with me. And thanks for having me. It's 6.33, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. By now, we all know that hospitals are struggling with staffing shortages, but it's not just us people who are having issues seeing a doctor. 
In the latest print edition of Isthmus, which hit newsstands today, editor Judith Davidoff writes about the shortage of veterinarians currently facing Madison. Davidoff spoke with WORT producer Nate Wegehout about the story earlier today. I'm joined on the line with Judith Davidoff, editor and president at, over at Isthmus and author of the story in the latest print edition of Isthmus on Madison's veterinarian shortage. Judith, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me. Thank you for having me. So let's just start things off with uh, looking at here in Madison. What's going on with vets here in Madison? What does it look like for someone with a pet who uh, needs to go see a vet? Yeah, I think um, it's uh, what we're seeing in Madison is what's happening everywhere. And I don't know, uh, frankly, how the shortage compares more severe or or less, but um, both uh, clinics, you know, for your wellness care and preventative care, um, they're stretched. It sounds um, like it's pretty hard to get experienced vets, um, maybe even harder to get vet techs. And um, the other piece of it is that the emergency hospitals um, are really stretched and might be having the hardest time uh, staying open and meeting the needs of um of pet owners, um, as it was explained to me um, by uh, Dr. Mark Markle, who's the dean of the uh, UW Vet School, um, specialists are uh, the ones who are really in um, most demand and uh, shortest supply. He said there's really a dramatic shortage of specialists. So there we're talking about you know critical care, emergency room, surgery, radiology, those kinds of things. And so now just looking at this story itself, why did you write this story? What made you decide to start looking into the vet shortage here in, in Madison? You know, um, started like a lot of other stories, just word of mouth. Um, one of my coworkers, um, her dog wasn't feeling well, and she called, it was a weekend, she called the emergency hospital and was essentially told, you know, it's going to be at least, I think, uh, for her, it was it's going to be at least four hours before we could see you because this um, she didn't know really what was wrong with the dog. Uh, just started um, sort of being kind of um, low energy and not eating. Um, so I uh, didn't really know what to tell the clinic when she called. Um, but, you know, in terms of they already triage, you know, emergency care, right? So they knew that what they were already dealing with um, was going to mean that they probably not, not be seen in four hours. And so she actually made the choice not to go and just watch the dog. Um, and so, you know, that was one story. I also saw um, actually the story on Facebook, um, Jacob, the um, man I spoke to from DeForest. Um, I didn't know Jacob, but someone had posted about that story um, a month or so ago. And, um, you know, I remember that it sounded like a um, really um, trying situation where, you know, this puppy who, you know, puppies, you can't really keep still. Um, and um, how, you know, they had finally seen someone in the emergency hospital, but then couldn't do the surgery. And so he was supposed to now, you know, keep this five month old puppy still um, until they could have the surgery, which, as you can imagine, um, was pretty hard, um, pretty much have to keep the dog sedated. Um, 
So uh, just, you know, some things like that. This article in The Atlantic came out. Um, seemed like there was a um, fair amount of national discussion then about the vet shortage. And um, and then Whole Pet, where um, I take my dog, uh, sent out this email. Um, and I thought, wow, well, this is really, this is a thing. <laughs> and uh, we should write it up. And now you mentioned uh, you spoke with a couple pet owners for this story to sort of see their perspective. And then you mentioned that you talked with a couple other people, including a whole pet veterinary clinic here in Madison. Uh, what did what did they have to say about what the shortage sort of looks like from from their end there? Yeah, well, she uh, so is Dr. Megan Caldwell, who um, co-owner of the um, clinic and or she was co-owner um both she and her, the original partner, sold the clinic, but she still works there. Um, and I think it was 2008. So she's and and before that, she worked at another Madison clinic. So she's been a vet for a long time, and um, does say that in recent years, it's just become harder and harder to find experienced vets. I mean, when she started out, maybe three decades ago. Um, I think she said, you know, um, it was hard to find a job in in Madison. Um, you know, um, you were lucky if you were able to kind of graduate from the vet school and, and stay in town. Um, and so that has obviously changed. Um, you know, COVID changed a lot. Uh, they, like probably every clinic, um, you know, had safety protocols. Um, you um, weren't allowed to really come in with your pet. They um, had limited staff in the clinic at one time. And so, you know, you end up getting this backlog of cases that you, um, you know, have to get to. Um, so, you know, there have been some surveys that talk about kind of productivity and efficiency suffering during this time. And um, yeah, she also mentioned that, you know, the vet techs, that it's, it's almost harder to find them. And she, she shared this, I mean, it's kind of a funny story, but um, one of the vet techs they sent to um, pick up meds at a different clinic. And apparently, as soon as she walked in the door and they saw that she was a tech, essentially offered her a job on the spot, you know, kind of poaching uh, other staff. Um, so I guess it's pretty desperate. So going, yeah. then you also spoke with uh, the dean of the UW School of Vet Medicine here in uh, Madison. Uh, what did What did he have to say? Yeah, he um, talked um, a bit about sort of within the profession what's been happening and, um, you know, how, I mean, it's a, it's a very demanding job as a vet. And, of course, if you're, you know, there are different kinds of vets. And if you're, you know, a vet in a small town and you, you know, are everything to everybody, um, you're basically on call all the time and um, working lots of hours. And, um, you know, I think that's, everywhere work a lot of hours and um, it's very high stress and at least in recent years um, you know vet graduates are choosing you know what seems to be maybe a a little bit more reasonable lifestyle um, and working at um, you know kind of companion pet clinics um, a little bit um, shorter hours you know higher pay and um, so that, of course, then leaves, um, you know, uh, more shortages um, at the ERs and, um, you know, in these specialty areas. So that's, that's one um, piece. 
he did talk a little bit about how the UW Vet School and others are, um, you know, trying to address the shortage. Um, they um, increased the class size a few years ago, so there are more students. But, um, you know, of course, that takes several years to kind of move through until you have those first graduates. So, um, you know, none of none of the changes even um, – he also talked about how um, they've um, opened up, you know, not the UW, but around the country, new vet schools have opened, and they've also uh, done accreditation in some of these um, schools that are um, overseas so that when those graduates come back to the States, they can more easily, um, you know, integrate in the system. So there are things that are being done. It's just that um, it's not going to address the situation in the near to term or um, there's some, there was this other study that um, I was pointed to um, that said that there's still going to be likely a uh, shortage of 15,000 vets by 2030. I've, I've been talking with Judith Davidoff, editor and president over at Isthmus. Uh, Judith also wrote the story in this latest uh, print edition of Isthmus, I should say, uh, which is all about Madison's vets shortage. Uh, you can read the full story for yourself either online at isthmus.com or by picking up a paper copy around Madison. Those just hit the newsstands today. Get them while they're hot. Uh, the story's filled with all sorts of great uh, pet pictures, so pick it up for yourself. Judith, thank you so much for coming on again and talking with me. Thank you very much. It's 643 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Every other Thursday, our contributor, Jonah Chester, sits down with Tom Kamenek, president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project, to discuss open records and government transparency issues. This week on Transparency Talk, they discuss recent moves in the lawsuit against Michael Gableman, the former Supreme state Supreme Court justice tasked with investigating Wisconsin's 2020 elections and what the developments mean for taxpayers. Now, a quick note that this conversation isn't specific legal advice, so please seek an attorney's assistance if you have difficulty with open records or open government. All right, it is every other Thursday, and as is tradition, I'm joined on the other end of the line by Tom Kamenek, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, how you holding up this week? Good. You holding cool? I'm staying cool, Tom. I uh, I recently moved into a new apartment. Listeners can't see the background, but I have a very powerful AC system now, so I'm staying cool in this weather. But you know who might be sweating a little bit, Tom, right now? The person who's also the focus of our segment for today, one Michael Gableman. If you don't know who Michael Gableman is at this point, quick Google for him, long and short. He's spent more than a year now investigating Wisconsin's 2020 election, spring and fall. For the past several months, he's been tied up in a number of, of lawsuits filed by the oversight group American Oversight, alleging he's sort of wantonly disregarded the state's open record laws. Now, 
Over the past couple of days, he's been saddled with two different decisions related to those cases where he has to uh, pay about roughly, give or take a few thousand, a quarter million dollars in fines. Oh, hang on a second. Tom, you're nodding. What did I get wrong? I wouldn't call it a fine. It is it is a fee shifting. It's an attorney fee award. So the attorneys for the plaintiffs, American Oversight, they won the case and then they submitted their bills to the other side and the, the judge ruled and ordered uh, the other side being Gableman and uh, Assembly Speaker Robin Voss to pay that. So that's different than the normal rule where, you know, everybody just basically pays their own attorneys. Yes, that's the default in America. Not every country is like that, but we the default rule is each side pays for their own attorneys. We don't have loser pays for attorney's fees. However, like every good rule, there are exceptions. And here they're called fee shifting statutes. So there's a set of laws on the books that say in certain types of cases, certain types of court cases, if the plaintiff wins, the defendant is going to pay those attorney's fees. And it's it almost never works the other way around. It's not a balanced thing. It, it's, it, it's a decision at the legislative level to kind of incentivize lawsuits that otherwise might not get brought and people wouldn't be asserting their rights in court because they're just too expensive to do. So they, they typically show up in one of two contexts. One is if there's a power imbalance between uh, private entities and individuals. So consumer protection laws have fee shifting statutes. Some employer employee relationships uh, under the law have fee shifting statutes too. But then the other big category of statutes with fee shifting is lawsuits against the government. So the big one is, you know, civil rights laws. If the government has violated your First Amendment right to free speech or your Fourth Amendment rights or Fifth Amendment rights, so a police brutality case, those cases can have fee-shifting statutes in them too, fee-shifting provisions. And as I know in my line of work, transparency statutes too. So both the records law and the meetings law, if you win your case in court with a big caveat that the Wisconsin Supreme Court just made this more difficult a couple of weeks ago. But the, the general idea is if the, the judge rules in your favor and says the other side violated the law, they have to pay your attorney's fees. Yeah, and quick plug on that uh, on that Supreme Court case you just mentioned. If you dig not too far back into our archives, you can find more on that online at wortfm.org. Now, moving on here, there's an important, there's an important note to this fee that Mr. Gableman is facing. And that is that they are not paying that out of their own pockets, right? That's coming from we, the taxpayers. Yeah, and that's how that always works. And sometimes that strikes people as a little unfair or a little strange. Because you know, Why should the taxpayers have to pay when these government officials violate the law? But that's almost always the case. And it, these are big policy decisions, but the victim needs to be made whole there. They shouldn't be out of pocket tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars to prove that the government violated the law. And we're better off having officials who follow the law and get punished when they don't somehow, even if it's just the lawsuit. Uh, it's worth that cost. And so when people ask me that, I, I'll remind them, you know, it's not my client's fault that they got victimized by the government. Somebody has to bear the cost of making these people whole. And it's either the person who's the victim bears all that cost themselves. It's entirely on their shoulders or it's spread out and diffused amongst all taxpayers. Why not make the individual official pay for it? You know, in this case, uh, Michael Gableman, or I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't Assembly Speaker Robin Voss also included in this fee, or was it just Gableman? I'm not sure, but either way, 
neither of them would have to pay individually. And sometimes I see proposals to say, hey, they should have to pay these out of their own pockets instead of the taxpayers. Well, as a practical matter, you're not going to be able to collect tens of thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars from one person. That can be really, really hard to do. It's actually, it's something people don't realize, but if you get a judgment against somebody, that's one thing, but getting them to actually pay you for it <laughs> often doesn't happen. Uh, a lot of times people are judgment proof. It's difficult to get money from them and, and hey, they could always file bankruptcy and you're just completely out, out of luck at that point. You know, there may be an, an insurance that would cover this, but if you think about that, that's still going to be a taxpayer-funded source of money because it's likely part of the job that you'd be getting the insurance, and I'm sure that would be offered as part of the benefits to pay that. So it's that gets floated every once in a while, but it's it's a little ironic that the the larger the fees are, the fines, the forfeitures, the awards, the less sense it makes to try to make one person pay them instead of uh, diffusing it across in taxpayers. And like I mentioned, insurance before, usually the insurance policies that your local municipal government buys, your local school district or your local city, those usually cover the these awards, minus deductibles, of course. So let's, let's look at why the bills in the Gableman case are so high. Now, I'm going to guess, let me take a guess here. Most people would look at this, say they've been in court for quite a while. Does the duration of the case have anything to do with those high costs? Well, the cases haven't been going on that long themselves. They're they're a few months old. I don't think any of them are, are a year or more, but they've been in court constantly in front of these judges, and there have been long hearings, multiple long hearings, and you're not just paying for the time spent in court. That takes tons of preparatory time beforehand, and there's briefs that have to be written, and they're also doing a lot of discovery. They're taking depositions of lots and lots of people, and one day of depositions, very roughly, is, is just about $3,000 between Paying, uh, paying the attorney plus paying for your court transcripts from your court reporter as well. So then you need prep time for that. So they're taking a lot of actions. They're moving quickly. They're doing a lot of things. Those, they're large numbers because these have been detailed, involved cases. Yeah, I do know uh, the uh, the ongoing hearings have been a, a pretty constant fixture on the Wisconsin Eye broadcast airwaves. So, man, I got to wonder how they're going to fill airtime now without, without this once these eventually all come to a close. Uh, hey, speaking of coming to a close, we've come to the end of our time for this week's episode. I've been joined on the other end of the line, as always, by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, thanks so much, as always, for joining me this week. It's been my pleasure, Jonah. And remember, if you don't ask, you won't know. Born in 1951, Ma- Matt Mixon had spent his formative years living in central Milwaukee, During the long, hot summer of 1967, African-American people across the country grew tired of waiting for fair housing, employment, and the end to abusive police tactics. In this archival edition of Radio Chipstone, contributor Jennifer Fields brings us the story of a young man and how he experienced the long, hot summer of 1967. In 1960s, uh, right around 63, my family moved to the far northwest side of Milwaukee, about three blocks north of Silver Spring Drive. It was a bit of culture shock going from Robert Fulton Jr. High to John Muir Jr. High 
and suddenly being one of just a handful of black kids in my school, most of my friends, my old friends, still lived in the Central City. So I would often go back into the Central City to play basketball or just hang out with some of my buddies. But around that same time, uh, the Black Panthers were making news. The nation was grappling with the struggle for civil rights. When I started to really notice things, I would say it was leading up, you know, late 66 going into 67. And I did have a, a part-time job on weekends working at a slot race car track on the corner of 9th and Burleigh. And it was a black-owned business. It was across the street from Tal's Cleaners. And it was kind of a weekend hangout for kids and teenagers. And I remember in July of 1967 when there were riots happening in Milwaukee. I remember standing on that corner looking out the door of the, uh, the slot race car track. And I saw a Jeep come down Burleigh. And it was just the strangest thing for me to watch a National Guard caravan, a mini caravan coming down Burleigh. It just seemed so totally out of whack. When the rioting happened, much of the anger was directed at the businesses that were along 3rd Street. And I didn't see any of that firsthand because by the time all of that started happening, um, I, I was back at home. As a teen, I didn't participate in marches and demonstrations. Um, living in, on the Northwest side, it was just not something that I could get away with. I always felt Milwaukee was a segregated city. Even when I lived in the central city, I remember that Capitol Drive was kind of like the border. Um, if you went beyond Capitol going north, you really didn't feel comfortable. I remember on one summer day, and I can't tell you the exact year, but I had gotten off the bus at 76 in Fond du Lac. There used to be an ice cream place on the corner there, and I had just enough money to buy that ice cream cone. And I'm licking the ice cream cone, and a convertible pulls up with some white teenagers in it, and they shouted some profanity at me uh, using that N-word. And I really wanted that ice cream, but I was angry. I was an angry young teen. And as the light turned green, I threw my ice cream cone, and it landed inside their convertible. And I thought, okay, that's it. You know, that's my way of striking back. Come say it to my face, you know. You get big and bad and you huff and puff, but what are you going to do with it? I was not a bad kid. I didn't, you know, I was not a troublemaker. You know, things like that, I still remember. I think that broadcasting ignored us um, during those days. I can't say that any of the Milwaukee stations really went into the black community and dealt with some of the big structural issues of institutional racism. The struggle for civil rights, as far as, as, far as media is concerned, 
was always a national story unless something happened like the riots in 67 to get on the radar locally. Back in the 60s and the early 70s, local television stations did do documentaries, but I don't have any recollection of those being about the core community. As I think back about that time, going from 67 into 68, James Brown came out with a song, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud, and it became kind of an anthem for many black teens. I remember thinking, well, I always knew I was black. I always knew I was proud. But to hear those two things connected in a song, all of a sudden it was like a beacon went off for me. And I said, yeah, that's me, you know? And music was also changing the way we, the way we listened and the way we reacted. There were a sequence of songs that came out in those few years. I remember Sly and the Family Stone came out with Everyday People around that time late 68 and then the temptations came out with psychedelic shack in the early 1970 and those were anthems and celebrations and my community was never going to be quite the same again for WORT I'm Jonathan Field And thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your reporters tonight were Emily Kasinger and, for the final time, Reed Kamai. Thanks for everything, Reed. Special thanks to contributors Jonah Chester and Tom Kamenick, as well as Jennifer Fields. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nate Wiggyhout produced this newscast. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Hey, remember, it's easy to find your favorite Wart shows on the station's app. And you can also listen to the local news as a podcast wherever you subscribe. And hey, guess what? It's my birthday. So because Wart is the gift that keeps giving, please support the station with your monthly evergreen donation. That would be a great gift. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening and good night. W-O-R-T, Madison. Madison.